they had letters to them. And um, as I said last week, uh, I think I will talk a little bit about Hilfa uh, Shabbos for the remainder, probably the remainder of uh, the year. Uh, so today, though, I'm going to give you an introduction. So it may not be immediately practical. But I think if, if you have a good introduction, a lot of the details will fall into place. Because uh, part of why Hilfa uh, Shabbos is very overwhelming is there are a tremendous amount of specific details. And just detail after detail after detail. And it's hard for anybody to remember a lot of details. But if you kind of know general principles, you can then organize the details under principles. And that makes it a lot easier. So it's true for everybody. It's true for rabbis. It's true for students in yeshivas. The more you can subsume detail under principle, the easier it'll be to know them and then to, uh, then to apply them. Uh, so first of all, uh, we know that the Jewish people were given the commandment of Shabbos even before they were at Harsina. Uh, the Torah talks about in Parshat Peshalach that they were at the oasis of Mara, and in that oasis it says God gave them Mishpat. Now it doesn't say what God gave them, right? It says, Sham some low chok u mishpat. Very enigmatic classic. There Hashem gave them chok, statutes, and mishpat, judgments. And there they tested God because they complained about the water and Moshe threw in a stick and the stick made the water sweet. Piece of wood, and, right? Okay, that's why it's called mara, which means bitter. Now, the, the Chumash does not say what commandments they were given at Mara. They were given something. But Rashi brings from the Midrash that they were given the outline of Shabbos, not everything, and they were given the commandment about honoring father and mother, and they were even given the ritual of Para Aduma. Now, why the red heifer? Why those three is an interesting question, but those were given at Mara. Now, at Harsinai, Shavuos is coming up, uh, we got the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is the mitzvah of keeping the Shabbos. Now, as you know, the uh, Ten Commandments come in two different versions in the Torah. They are in Parshas Yisro, which we're going to read Shavuos morning. It's very important to reading. But in Parshas Yashana, before Moshe Rabbeinu dies, he reviews the Ten Commandments. And it's 85% the same. But in Moshe Rabbeinu's review, there are some differences. And interestingly, the commandment which has the most differences is the fourth commandment of Shabbos. So let me just list some differences between the first version of the Ten Commandments and the second version of the Ten Commandments. In Yisrael, we are commanded to remember the Shabbos to keep it holy. In the Eschanan, we are told shamor, to observe or keep the Shabbos. So Yisrael is Zohor, and the Eschanan is shamor. The question is, of course, which did God say? I mean, you know, the Torah says Zohor, and then Moshe says Shamor. Which did Hashem say? So our famous teaching is, Hashem said both words simultaneously. 
And we heard two things. We heard Shamar and Zachar. That's why in the famous song, I don't know if you've got a chance to say it, Come, my friend, to greet the bride. Let us greet the Shabbos bride. So it begins, the first line of it, after the, uh, after the chorus, is Shamar v'zachar v'diborachar. God said, Shamar, observe. And God said, Zachar, remember, v'diborachar, in one word. Now, you may ask me a question. Why does it say Shamar and Zachar? Zachar is first. Zachar is in Shemos. And Shamar is in Vyaschanan, the Varim. So why does the poem begin Shamar v'zachar v'diborachar? It should say Zachar v'shamar v'diborachar. So the answer is very simple. It's not a deep answer at all. Zachar Dodi was a poem written by a Talmud of the Ari, or a colleague of the Ari, Rav Shlomo Halevi Alkaba, in the 1500s. And each letter of the Chadodi is a letter of his name, Shlomo Halevi. So the first letter of his name is Shin. So we had to begin the first stanza with a Shin, not a Zion. So he couldn't have said, Zachar the Shomar the He had to begin it, Shomar the Zachar. So he changed the order with poetic life. Now sometimes, we have simple answers, sometimes it's not necessarily going to be a deep Kabbalistic answer. Okay, so that's a difference. What's the meaning of the difference? What is the difference between remembering the Shabbos and keeping, observing the Shabbos? So the answer is, remembering the Shabbos is connected to what we would call the positive aspect the mitzvah to make Kiddush, or hear Kiddush, to proclaim the holiness of Shabbos. And that includes Havdalah, because the same way you must honor the Shabbos by proclaiming its holiness. When Shabbos begins, you must honor the Shabbos when Shabbos is over by proclaiming its holiness. So Zohar is both the source for Kiddush and Havdalah. So that's Zohar, remember. Shamar is referring to the negatives. Do not do work on Shabbos, uh, meaning one is a positive, one is a negative. So if you sleep all day on Shabbos, you have fulfilled Shamar, because you haven't done anything wrong, but you haven't honored the Shabbos. If you make Kiddush and have a festive meal, you're honoring the Shabbos, but if you then drive home, you're not observing the Shabbos properly, right? So that's why you need Shamar and you need Zachar. So that's one difference. A second major difference is the reason that's given for Shabbos. It's quite amazing. In Yisrael, the reason that's given for Shabbos is the most obvious reason, that Hashem made the world in six days and he rested on Shabbos and therefore, Shabbos is holy because it is the day that God himself stopped all of his work, and therefore we remember that by not working on Shabbos. In other words, Shabbos is a, uh, is a commemoration of Hashem creating the world. That is the reason that is given in 
Yisra. In the Eschanan, there's another reason that's given, and that is, you shall remember that you were slaves in Mitzrayim, and God redeemed you from your slavery. Therefore, he commanded you to keep the day of Shabbos. In other words, Shabbos is somehow a commemoration of the exodus from its right. So, in other words, you are free. You don't work on Shabbos because God freed you from being a slave. You're not a slave. Yisro is Briasa Oma, that God made the world in six days and he rested on Shabbos. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is in the Yitzhiyas. Is that Shamar? So Zachar is Briasa Oma, and Shamar is Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Now, what's interesting is that these are two dimensions of Shabbos, both of which are true. One is, I am not the master of the world, Hashem is. Meaning, I remember on Shabbos that Hashem is the creator of the world. I am not the boss. Hashem is the boss, right? I am not the master of the world. That is what Briyas HaOlam teaches me. But you know what Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim teaches me? The world is not the master over me. Meaning, the only thing to whom, the only entity to which I am a slave is to HaKadosh Baruch I am not a slave to other human beings. So the fact that my boss says I gotta work on Shabbos or whatever it is, I just say no. You see the two connections. So the connection to Briya Sa'olam reminds me that I'm not the boss. But the connection to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim reminds me that no human being is my boss either. It is only HaKadosh Baruch. And I can say no. I can say no to anybody else in the world unless it is a matter of life and death. Pikuach nefesh. And that's an important thing, that no matter what it is, when Shabbos comes, you just say no to the world. They don't control you. They don't own you, because the last people who owned us were the Egyptians in Mitzrayim. And when Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim, He made us free over being ruled by other human beings. Now, practically, of course, uh, we do have responsibilities towards other human beings, but they're not our masters. Only Hashem is our master. Okay. So that's one major difference between Yisrael and the uh, Eskana. Now, Shabbos has many, many different categories. So let's, let me just go over some of the other categories. We have, of course, the Zohar categories. The Zohar categories will include things like Kiddush, Havdalah, making meals in honor of Shabbos, dressing in nicer clothing in honor of Shabbos, washing yourself, taking a bath or a shower before Shabbos. All of, the, all of these are the ways we honor Shabbos. Lighting candles is a way of honoring Shabbos. You honor Shabbos by generating light. So that's the, that's the positive aspect. Within the negative, though, we have quite a few different categories, and they are different. The largest and most complicated category, which is already huge, 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 is the category called Molach. 
Malacha are the forbidden types of work that you cannot do on Shabbos. And that's only one category. There'll be a lot of other categories. But Malacha is by far the hugest of the huge categories. And according to our Barola, Mishra and Gemara, the Torah just says, don't do work on Shabbos. Right? But it, doesn't really, it doesn't tell you that much. But based on the Torah Shabbat path, there are 39 categories of Malacha that you cannot do on Shabbos. And the way we get that is that Chazal, our sages, identified 39 activities in the construction of the tabernacle, of the Mishkan. And since the Torah writes about Shabbos right next to the Mishkan, so we have an interpretation, whatever was involved in building the Mishkan is what you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. So the definition of Malacha is that which was utilized in the construction of the Mishnah. And again, how do you know what was utilized? Because I'll identify 39 activities. So I'm going to run through a huge, huge list. But once again, we'll divide the list in a few categories. Category 1, which is 11 out of the 39, 11 malachot, are called Sidura de Paz, the steps that are involved in making bread. Of course, you may ask, how is that connected to the mission? I'll, I'll come back to that question. And these are 11 malachot that are connected to giving you bread. So the first one is plowing. We're going all the way back. You plow the ground to make it soft, to plant the seed. The next one is planting. Actually, maybe I'll give you the Hebrew too. The plowing is chovesh. Planting is zorea. You're just following the order here, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one is harvesting. That's kotzer. That's three. The fourth one is ma'amer, making sheaves. After you harvest the grain, you make bundles. That's a mulacha called ma'amer, bundling. After that is dosh. Dosh is threshing. You know what threshing is? Threshing is you have a stalk, and on the stalk there's a seed. So thresh is you beat it. So you separate the seed from the stalk. That's called dosh. Threshing. So now you have seeds, right? Now you have seeds mixed with dirt and mixed with little pieces of stuff. So the next thing is called Zora. Zora is winnowing. Now, again, we're just following the order of, of bread, basically. Winnowing is when you have a bunch of seeds that's mixed in with little chaff and the like, so you throw it up, you actually have like that, and the wind blows away the light part of stuff, stuff right? So that's winnowing, separating the, the chaff. Then we have rare which is also a separation. It's actually, the Gemara actually says that these are all separation things at this point. Borer is when you remove little pebbles or dirt, meaning it's too heavy to be blown away by the wind. Zora, winnowing, is the wind blows it away when you throw it up. Borer is you actually have to uh, sift it. 
Now, so now you have clean seeds. When you have clean seeds, your next thing is tochen. You grind it into flour. After you grind it into flour, miraked, you sift the flour to get rid of also impurities. So the truth is, we actually have three malachot that involve removal of impurities. Winnowing, which is zoreh, borer, which is removal of dirt, and miraked, sifting. You want to actually say this functionally, they're all the same malacha. Even though they count as three, they are separating impurities from the food. So now you have good flour. So what do you do? Lush, you make a dough. Mix it with water and make a dough. And the final one is that you bake it or cook it. That's cooking and baking are the same malachim. Okay, so there are 11 malachos here. 11 that are, they're called the order of making bread. Starting with choresh, plowing the ground, and ending with oka. Now, you may just ask me, but I just, didn't I just say that the definition of malacha are things that were used in the construction of the Mishkan? <coughs> when they constructed the Mishkan, I mean, they weren't baking bread to construct the Mishkan. So in reality, it's interesting, although Chazal, for memorization purposes, wanted to connect this to bread baking, but in the Mishkan, these malachas were not bread baking malachas. These malachos were really dye preparation. In other words, they would take herbs. <coughs> they would grow herbs, which they would harvest and then boil up to make the dyes by which they would dye the different materials. You see? So instead of so threshing all those other things, instead of thinking about it for wheat, these were the herbs or the plants that they would use for the dyes. Okay. But again, for convenience, just to memorize them or to remember them, we, uh, the first 11 are called the order of bread. Now, we then have 13, which is the order of making cloth. Now, this was very important in the Mishkan because the Mishkan had these coverings, these tapestries, and these cloths. So the next 13 are involved, are all involved things you do to make or preserve clothing. So the first one... They don't have a phrase for it, actually. Uh, they only use Sidur de Paz for the first 11. This is yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did 11, and now we're doing another group of 13. Right? So you see, it breaks up into groups. Uh, the first is Gozes. Gozes is shearing a sheep. You shear a sheep to get wool. Right? Now it's interesting. All of these malachas are, have extensions. So for example, biting your fingernail is the malacha of gozes, even though you're not doing it for wool. Okay. After your gozes, the next thing, if you have wool, is malaben. You clean the wool from the dirt and the sweat. This would be laundering. Right? Soaking the wool in the water is called malaben. Malaben literally means whitening. But we don't mean whitening in the sense of putting it in a white dye. No, we just mean 
washing out the filth. The third one, minapets. Minapets is combing out the tangles. So gozes, right? If you just take one, gozes, mulaben, minapets, and then sovo is dying. Because remember, for the uh, for the Mishkan, they had to dye the wool red or the different colors. Right, so dying, coloring, coloring, huh? So Right, there's one. Now that's going to be very important. That's why you have problems with makeup on Shabbos or lipstick on Shabbos, or different things, or blush, because you're soveya, you're coloring. Now we do allow you to eat strawberries, even though it's disgust, because uh, since you're doing it for eating, we don't consider that dying. But you know, these are the types of issues. Meaning, today we're really going to just mention the lovers, but remember that the whole learning of the laws of Shabbos is to how to apply these categories to different activities that we're doing. You see, that it's, uh, we draw analogies, we draw comparisons. Okay, so we've done four, right? Gozes, uh, shearing, cutting the wool, mulaben, cleaning the wool, menapets, disentangling the wool, combing it, Sovo, sovea, coloring it, dyeing it. Now, and then we have the next one is tove, that's tes, vavhe, and that's spinning it into thread. Right? I don't know if you've ever done this. Uh, if you go to Williamsburg, I don't mean Williamsburg, Brooklyn, but if you go to Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, you can see what they used to do in colonial times. Spinning wheels, in which you have like a bunch of wool, but you spin it around, spin it around, spin it around, and you make thread. So taking fibers and making them into thread is a malacha called tava, making thread. Okay, that's tava, so that's how many? That's five. Now, the next one are quite, quite complicated because we're not familiar, well, well, most people are not familiar with weaving. Now, if indeed you have a uh, you know how to you've had you you've operated a loom or you know how to weave. These are not so difficult. But most guys in yeshiva always have trouble uh, with these malachas. They don't really picture them that well. Uh, but there are three malachos that involve the weaving process. Because after you have thread, you then weave a garment. Uh, the first weaving malacha is called mesach. That's Mem, Yud, Samach, Chaf. And Mesach is setting up the warp. <laughs> so here, uh, in, in weaving, we have the warp, and I'm using the English word here, the warp and the woof. Weft. Weft, they call it? Call, they, they, they call it weft? They call it woof, okay. So the warp basically means, you know, if you have a loom, you, uh, it's the longer side of the garment. You set up the threads across the loom, and then the weft is going to go in between those threads, kind of at right angles. Okay? So Mesach is setting up the warp. Just setting it up, meaning when you set up the, 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 
the strings or the threads of the warp across the loom, even though you didn't weave anything, because there's no weaving until you interpose the weft, right? But the, there is a separate malacha called mesach, setting up the warp threads. Okay, that's the first malacha. The second is also a malacha. This is very unusual that we're looking at each preliminary step as a separate malacha. You might have just looked at the final thing of weaving, but no. Is you make, okay, the, the Hebrew is oseh beis or shtayim bate nirin. Now, bate nirin are loops. Again, modern, modern looms don't always work, but if you look at the old-fashioned looms, what you did was this. Uh, on one hand, you have the warp threads going in that direction, one end of the, of the loom to the other end, and then you're going to have the, um, uh, you're going to have the weft going through it, but the way to do it is in order to have it go up, down, up, down, up, down, so when you have a paddle, whatever it is, you lift up half of the threads at a time. Half, 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 half. See what I mean? Let's imagine you have a hundred uh, warp threads. Now, you then want to have a weft thread going through it. Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. So the way you do it is 50%, uh, every other, let's say, every odd-numbered weft goes up, and then it goes through, and then every even goes up, up, right? And that way, you're able to have your threads go through everything. So in order to do that, you have to make loops in the, uh, in the warp threads uh, so, one second, uh, so that you can position the, uh, um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember, what do, what do you need the loops for? They're connected to the frame, meaning to say, when you, when you press on the paddle and uh, the thing gets lifted up, uh, that means there has, to be, there has to be something that lifts up the warp thread. So that means there has to be a loop that has a string that when you press the paddle, it pushes up. Okay, so basically if you make two of them, in other words, if you make two of them on two warp strings, uh, that's part of the weaving process. And then the final one is the weaving itself, when the weft goes through it. Right? So, again, we don't have to go over the detail, but essentially, these are three activities connected to weaving. So we started with shearing, cleaning, combing, coloring, making thread, weaving, okay, in three steps. Oreg. Oreg. So there's mesa, which is the warp threads, but the nearin is making loops in the warp threads, and weaving is actually having the weft go through the warp uh, threads. Okay? So that's weaving. So we started with shearing, and we then wind up with weaving. Now then, we have what you might call repair jobs. 
that is Hotseya. Hotseya is pulling out a thread. Sometimes you might have a weft thread that didn't go through, right? So you've got to kind of pull it out and start again. So that's called Hotseya. Hotseya is when you pull out a thread that you had woven into the garment. Right? So that's a malacha. Then we have kosher. Now kosher is a malacha I know you've heard about. That means to tie a knot. You're not allowed to tie a permanent knot. Now again, we'll, just, we'll see later that temporary knots like shoelaces that you can undo by pulling or bows are permitted. But things like square knots or permanent knots are not. But what people don't always know is knots, you know, N-O-T-S, the K-N-O-T-S, are connected to the weaving process. Why is that so? <clears throat> because sometimes when a, when a warp thread breaks, instead of having to start over again, they would tie a little knot between the two ends of the string to keep the string together. So kosher, analytically, is a chalak, it is a portion of the weaving process. Although it's not a standalone malacha, but it's at its origin in weaving. And similarly, matir. Just like you're not allowed to make a knot that's permanent, you're not allowed to untie a knot that's permanent. This may be a problem sometimes if, if you have laced shoes or laced boots and you accidentally made a, made a permanent knot, you might not be able to be allowed to undo it if it's a type of knot that would last. Now, why is matir part of the weaving? Because sometimes you made the knot on the wrong part of the string. So you've got to undo it. So that's part of the process. Uh, okay. Now, after you weave a garment, you then sew it to other woven garments. That's exactly how the mission was built. Things were woven, and then another thing was woven, and then you would sew it. And that's called tofer, which is sewing. Okay, so these are different processes. There's weaving, which is the warp and the weft. And then there is sewing, which is connecting two woven garments, tofer. And then, sometimes with tofer, if undoing weaving is called tosea, you pull out a thread, undoing sewing is called korea, ripping. Sometimes if you sewed something unevenly, you know, you cut it or you rip it in order to start again, that's korea, and korea has to be korea for the purpose of re-sewing. So remember, ripping is forbidden when it is for the purpose of re-sewing. Okay? So again, I don't expect you to memorize all this, but I hope it helps you to put things in categories. So these are 13 malachos that are connected with clothing. And these were certainly done in the Mishnah because they made the Urios, right? The Urios are the curtains and the tapestries of the Mishnah. And all of these were directly involved in those processes. Okay. Third category are seven malachos, and they are involved not in cloth, but in animal hides. 
In Hebrew, that's or. Or not, not light. Aleph, love, reish, but ayin. Huh? Animal what? Hides. Hides? Hides. Skin. Skin. Or leather. Or leather. Because uh, remember, the Mishkan had both woven things and it had animal skins, animal hides. So the first one is tzad, hunting. They have to capture an animal, like a goat, like a, an antelope or whatever. Then they would kill it, shochet. Because you understand that skinning hides are very different than wool. Wool, I can shear a sheep for wool without killing it. So shochet is not in that category of uh, wool, but shochet is in the category of skinning because you can't skin an animal without you killing it first. So shochet, or killing an animal, is a malacha. Then we have mafshit, skinning it. Okay, so hunting, capturing. Number one, killing. Number two, skinning. Mafshit, number three. Number four, molcho. Hides would be salted. That was part of the processing of leather. What was it called in Hebrew? Uh, molcho is like moleach, like salt. Melech is salt. So, but again, do not confuse this. This is not talking about salting food to yeah. eat. That's what yeah. we're talking about. Salting to preserve yeah. material, like leather. Mahabed is then what we call tanning, tanning leather. That's, again, soaking leather in different fluids to, uh, to preserve it, huh? Yeah, so that's called Mahabed. Then we have Nimachek. Nimachek is smoothing it down because there are hairs and the like. And if you use sandpaper or something to smooth down a bumpy surface, that's part of a leather processing called mimachek. And the last one is mechatech, when you cut it into an even size. Because you understand, when you skin an animal, it's not going to be even. I mean, you skin it off the body of an animal, but when you cut it to squares, and you cut it into the size of a garment, you cut it into... Uh, a particular size that you want it to be, that is called michatech. Cutting something to a predetermined dimension. Michatech. Huh? So toilet paper. That's exactly right. So, so one of the issues of ripping toilet paper on the uh, edges, uh, on the serrated edges or whatever, is michatech. Okay. So these are seven malachos involving hides. So we did bread. That's 11. Uh, we did uh, cloth, which is 13. We did animal skins, which is 7. So we're getting there. So that's 11. 13 is 24. And 24 and 7 is 31. 31 laws. Then we have two that are kind of miscellaneous. They involve writing. It is forbidden to write two letters. Now this is the rights of two letters. And it is forbidden to erase writing for the purpose of writing other letters. 
This is actually significant. Now, this is called in Hebrew, kosev is a malacha, and mochek is a malacha. Now, once again, you'll ask the question, what does this have to do with building a mishkan? Where was writing and erasing used in building a mishkan? The answer is, they were used this way because the mishkan was constantly assembled and disassembled, and then they would go from place to place and build it again. So as a result, they wanted to keep the boards in the same order. So let's imagine you have 10 boards. So they would actually write, you know, Aleph, Aleph, and these two boards go together, Bays, Bays. And uh, therefore, they wrote two letters so the boards would match up. You'd always be able to put a board next to the board it generally was next to. And if they made a mistake, they would erase the numbers, put other numbers in. So both writing and erasing were part of the process in the in the dis disassembling and the assembling of the mission. Kosev and Mochik. So all, everything has its origin in the mission. So that leaves us, so again, we have how many here? 11, 13 is 24, 31, and 2 is 33. So we now have six malachos that are left. And these are miscellaneous. They can't really be characterized. Uh, number one of these six is building. Obviously, when they put the Mishkan up, they were building a building. So, bona, building is a malacha. And we're going to see these things have amazing applications, like Legos. Is Legos building? Like, what's building, right? But the concept is building is forbidden on Shabbos. Number two, demolishing a building is forbidden on Shabbos. So it's just like we have this, you see, we have uh, this pair. Just like we said that you're not allowed to tie a knot and you're not allowed to undo a knot. You're not allowed to write and you're not allowed to erase. So too, you're not allowed to build, you're not allowed to destroy a building, right? So these things work in symmetry. That's called soser. Similarly, you're not allowed to make a fire and you're not allowed to extinguish a fire. See how it works. Don't make, don't extinguish. And uh, just two more. Maka the patish is a phrase that means the last hammer blow. Patish is like a hammer. And that refers to what we say, making something a final clue. Let's say that you were making something and it's almost finished but you just got to even it out a little bit. So that's a malacha, to make, give something its final form. We commonly talk about making a clay, making a vessel, but that's based on makah, the patish. Because again, in the Mishkan, they had final things that they did to make it right. Mm -hmm. And the 39th malacha, are the various forms of carrying that are not allowed on Shabbos. And uh, there are two different types of carrying that's forbidden. One, actually there are three types, three types of carrying that are forbidden. This is if you don't, this is if you don't have an Arab. 
And a lot of people forget these laws because they have Arabs and everything else, but, but if you didn't have an Arab, we would have the following laws. You cannot carry from a private place to a public place. That would mean you wouldn't be allowed to carry from your house to the outside. That's number one. Number two, you can't go from the outside to the inside. Same thing. Now, these are enormously complicated laws, although I, I stated them very simply, because uh, the question becomes, there are different ways you can make the outside like the inside. The theory of Aleph is you have a symbolic enclosure which essentially turns the outside into the inside. Right now, we're not going to talk about that. But if you lived in a place without an Aleph, you could, you could carry in your house, no problem with that, right? But you can't go from the inside to the outside, and you can't go from the outside to the inside. And the third thing is, you cannot carry something four amos, which is around six to eight feet, outside. Meaning, let's assume that something was just outside, without a neighbor. And I didn't take it from the inside to the outside, or the outside to the inside. It's just outside. But I can't move it for amos outside. And so those are three forms of prohibited carrying on Shabbos. And each one has its own name. Hotza'ah is taking it from the inside to the outside. Hachnasah is taking it from the outside to the inside. Because haknasah means bringing it, bringing it in. And just moving it four amos outside is called havara. Havara just means transporting it for four amos. Okay, this is considered to be carrying. So these are the 39 malachos of Shabbos. And all of the gazillion applications that we have are based on activities resembling these 39 malachos of Shabbos. Now, the number 39 itself is a very mystical number because it is said that Hashem created the world with 10 statements. You know, God said this, Kirkayavos mentions that Hashem created the universe with ten declarations. But we also know that there are four worlds. Right? So uh, I'm sure you, you learned this in Hasidus. Uh, there's the world of Atsilas, I'm going from highest to, to lowest. The world of Atsilas, which is the world of pure spiritual emanation. And then there's the world of Bria, creation, which is a bit more concretized. And then there's the world of Yitzira, formation. And then there is the physical, tangible world we live in, which is the world of Asiya. Famous, famous. I mean, again, this was not invented by Hasidus. This is a well-known, I mean, not that we understand it, but it's a well-known idea. In Kabbalah, uh, this is abbreviated Avya. Avya, Aleph, Beis, Yud, Ayin. Avya. Asiya, Asiya, Asiya. 
And the Alter Rebbe in Tanya uh, talks about this quite a lot, how the holiness of the upper world actually is within the lower world, but it's nislabesh, it's enveloped in the lower world. It's not that the lower worlds come out of the higher worlds, but the higher world is literally in the lower world, but it's all covered up. So here's the thing. If indeed Hashem made the universe with ten declarations, but there are four worlds, each of those four worlds has Asara Mamaras. So the, it's also connected to ten spheros as well. So which means Hashem's total creative creativity is 40. Because Asara Mamaros times the four Olamos of Atsilos, Ria, Yitzira, and Asiya. Now, of those 40 layers of creativity, a human being that is made in the image of God can only do 39 because there's one layer that's totally inaccessible to a human being and that's called Yeshmiyayin, creating something out of nothing. All we can do is take that which is already created and we can form it, we can elevate it, we can degrade it, we can destroy it, at least in its physical shape. Right? So we have tremendous power. Kodesh Baruch Hu gave us tremendous power to create, to elevate, to destroy, to degrade. But the one thing we cannot do is create a yesh out of an ayin. So out of the 40 levels of creativity of God, we have access to 39 of them. But we don't have access to the yesh me'ayin. Okay, and that's why there's a mystical significance in the number 39. Okay? Now, again, obviously as, as, as complicated as all these details are, I'm being very, very simple, actually, because the complications are much greater. Uh, these 39 are called Ovos. Ovos, fathers, mean principal categories of Malacha, but each of them has children called Toldos. Let me give you a very simple example. Um, the Av Malacha that was in the Mishkan was cooking. But baking is usher because it's a tolda. In other words, it's similar to the Av, but it's technically a different process. So if things are not exactly like the Mishkan, but they're doing the same thing, that we call that tolda. Or let me give you a simple example. Zorea, planting. Now planting is an Av Malacha. Now, you may ask me, what malacha do I do when I water my garden? You'll notice there was no malacha called watering a garden. So why can't I water my garden on Shabbos? Answer, watering is a tolda of planting because planting is causing something to grow. So anything you do that improves growth of a plant is a tolda, a child of Zorea. So, what malacha do I transgress when I water a plant? Watering a plant is a tolda of the av of Zorea. Similarly, I, I know you've heard over the years that you're not allowed to milk a cow on Shabbos. 
And indeed, even a mother, generally speaking, is not, I mean, a baby can nurse at a breast, that's fine, but a mother should not, unless the child is sick, I mean, again, there'll be all sorts of exceptions, but as a general rule, a mother is not supposed to express milk into bottles on shots. Whether it's a manual pump or an electric pump, even a manual pump. Now, what malacha is there in milking? I don't know if you remember the whole list, but in the whole list we went through, there is no mention of a prohibition of milking either an animal or a human. So what malacha? See, this may sound a little funny. Milking is a tolda of threshing. There is a malacha called dush. Now, dush is when you beat the, the, the stalk in order to extract the seed that's in the, in the stalk. So, whenever you express something edible that is covered up within the body, whether it's the body of the grain or the body of the animal or the body of the human, it is threshing. So, you see, things can be very far afield. You wouldn't think that milking a cow or a woman expressing breast milk into a bottle is threshing. You wouldn't call it threshing. And yet, it is. You see? Because you're looking at the concept. So technically, therefore, watering is a tolda of zorea. Milking is a tolda of dash or disha. Disha, dash is the same, same thing. You see? So this is where the laws of Shabbos get so intricate because we're identifying a central concept. Now, whether something is an av or a tolda makes virtually no difference. So in other words, the fact that it's a tolda does not mean it's less severe. Av and tolda are exactly the same. There are some differences about sacrifices, which we don't have to get into right now. Uh, so do not get the misimpression that because something is a tolder, it's somehow less. Drawing a picture is a good example. Why can't I draw a picture on Shabbos? What's wrong with drawing a picture? The answer is drawing a picture is a tolder of writing. Now the writing that's an av is only letters or numbers. But you draw a picture, it is a tolder of writing. Okay, but just because it's a tolda doesn't mean it's more lenient. Avos and toldos are both forbidden under Torah law. Okay, so a lot of things. So whenever you have any type of question, I mean, putting aside the rabbinical question, but uh, whether something's mutter or or not, you need to be able to know what malacha is it, whether it's an av or a tolda, etc., because it has to fit within the 39 categories of Malacha, but once again, uh, it is far, far more deeper than just literal interpretation. There's a lot of things you would not literally associate with the Malachas, but they are connected in that, in that sense. Okay? Uh, anyone, any questions about it? Yeah. Um, when you were talking about the Malacha of erasing, you said erasing for the sake of rewriting, yep. today... The is erasing point blank, but. Yes, so I'm going to I'm going to get into in, into Durabana, uh because there's 100% the oraisa, the oraisa. If I just want to erase because I want a blank piece of paper, it is actually permitted to do it 
The Torah prohibits erasing only if done for the purpose of writing, uh, just like the Torah prohibited ripping only if you want to re-sew it. However, rabbinically, these things are forbidden standing standing alone. Right? So there are a lot of rabbinic uh, additions here. Okay, so now, I mentioned in the beginning, <laughs> I may have forgotten that I said it, that the laws of Shabbos comprise many, many branches. Molochos is only one branch, although it's a huge branch. Molochos is a huge, huge branch, but it's only a branch, and there are other branches on the tree of Shabbos. Uh, let me mention a category called Tuchon Shabbos, which is a Torah law, but it's not Molochos. Tuchon Shabbos, you're not going to come across it a lot unless you're in the country. If you're in an urban area, it's not going to be a problem. But there actually is a law how far you're allowed to walk on Shabbos. You are allowed to walk on Shabbos only 2,000 amos. Now, 2,000 amos is around 4,000 feet, approximately one kilometer, less than a mile. You are allowed to walk. No, 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 don't get nervous. Uh, uh, you are allowed to walk no more than a kilometer, 2,000 amos, from your place of residence. This is going to be critical. Now, this is a real tough law because if you goofed, and you went 2,001 Amos from your place of residence. You are frozen there for the rest of Shabbos. Now that you can't just say, oops, I took one step over the boundary, let me just go back. Nope. You're actually given a radius of four Amos. So, so you're not frozen literally there, but you, you can go four, you can go in a circle of four Amos. Now, if someone, God forbid, ever got stuck in that situation and it was dangerous, so obviously halacha is permitted if you have to go to the bathroom. I mean, there, there are extenuating circumstances. But this is a serious thing. You, you actually might have to be stuck. Now, this may scare you. A kilometer? Oh, so note what I said. It's 2,000 amos from the place of your residence. Now, what do I mean by place of your residence? I don't mean your house. As long as you have continuous houses, right? As long as you have houses that keep on going that are not separated by large distances, you know, I'll mention the distance in a moment, your 2,000 amos don't, don't even start. So let's say you're Shalom. Let's say you want to walk to Harnoth. That's a long walk, right? But the truth is, how can I walk to Harnoth on Shabbos that's way more than a kilometer. The answer is no. Your 2,000 amos don't even start because house after house after house after house after house after house. So your residence is not defined as your particular house. Your residence is defined essentially as the city that you're in as long as there are continuous houses. Now. That basically means, the way, the way it works is, again, it's, it's, it's very complicated, uh, as long as there's not 140 amos between houses, 280 feet between the houses, then your city keeps on going. 
once you have a break, now it may be in suburbia in America, where houses are in very big lots, you may have a problem of dukhan. But in Eretz Israel, where everything is crowded together, you can keep on going. So be aware of dukhan, but realistically, just know that it's not going to be a problem here. And it's not going to be a problem in most cities. But when you're in the country, when you're in the country, now you may, you know, you may get you messed up. Let's say you're in a country, you're taking a nice walk through farmland or whatever it will be. You might find your Shabbos walk very, very limited. And uh, be careful that if you go even one inch beyond the limit, you're going to be frozen to the four animals uh, there. For all of Shabbos, all of Shabbos. How do you know that you're walking 2,000 almost? Oh, like, uh, so, you know, well, you know, you, gotta, you, you know, you have to estimate. You don't know for sure, and therefore you want to be conservative. It's interesting, the Gemara gives a story. Remember, there was, the one, there was one heretic in the Gemara, Elisha ben Aguya. Elisha ben Aguya was a great, great rabbi. But for whatever reason, a lot of complicated reasons, he stopped believing in Torah, he stopped believing in God. And he became an Apikoros. And in fact, he's known as Acher, the other one. We don't even like to mention his name. But the great Rabbi Meir continued to learn Torah from him. And people ask Rabbi Meir, how can you learn Torah from a man who doesn't believe? He said, I treat my Rebbe like a pomegranate. I throw away the inedible peel, and I eat the good seeds. And Elisha ben so it mentions Elisha ben was once eating a non-kosher sandwich, riding on a horse on Yom Kippur that was on Shabbos. And he was like doing all these averses at the same time, right? A horse, riding a horse, not allowed to do, and carrying and eating tray on his Yom Kippur. And Rav Meir is running after him, asking him Shilas in Torah. And at some point, Elisha ben said to Rav Meir, go back, we're approaching the end of your Shabbos quarter. Yom Kippur and Shabbos. And to me, it's always very fascinating that all, although Elisha ben Aguya was such a sinner, he didn't want Rav Meir. See, most of the time today, the atheists like to uh, bring you over to their side. You know, these, uh, it's almost like heroes, like, you know, <laughs> atheist outreach. Their job is they want to bring you over to their belief system. Like, why? I mean, you want to be an atheist, be an atheist. Why do you feel some obligation? to make others convinced. And even Elisha ben Aguya, and I think it's to his credit, Elisha ben Aguya did not want Rabbi Meir to sin. And when Rabbi Meir was about to violate the Shabbos boundary, Elisha ben Aguya said, no, gotta go back. He didn't care, he kept on going, he was eating tripe on Yom Kippur and Shabbos. Okay, so we have Mulacha, which is Daraisa, we have Tuchun, the Shabbos boundary, which is the Oraisa. Uh, you know, you don't have to worry about that too much. Yeah. Just really quickly, so is this just one kilometer or two thousand almost, like in one direction? Like, or once you get past that, the radius, is this like a? Yes, yes, yes. In all directions, meaning you have. Uh, you can walk anywhere. Actually, that. it's a square, meaning you actually have um, a total of four thousand almost. Meaning to say, you draw from. Your city, whenever your city ends, ironically, uh, you draw 2,000 amos in all directions, square it, yeah. and you then have the whole square to walk through. So actually, that means on the diagonal, yeah. you actually have more than 
to 2,000, more than 4,000 dollars. Okay. Okay, you understand how that works? In other words, uh, you, uh, you first have to determine your, your city area based on the houses, and after you've, you've concluded your city, you then draw a 2,000 AMA line in all directions, you square that line, and that is your Shabbos designated area. As I say, uh, practically speaking, you can walk all of Yerushalayim. You don't have to worry about this at, uh, at all. Okay, so that's Malacha. That's a Tuchumin. Now, the next one is an interesting thing. Your animal must rest on Shabbos as well. You are not allowed to have your animal do work on Shabbos. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean I can't allow my cow to eat grass because the cow is harvesting? No. Animals can do work. I mean, the Torah doesn't prohibit an animal from doing work. But you cannot use your animal to do work. So, for example, even if I'm not operating the plow, let's assume before Shabbos, I hooked my animal up to a plow, and the animal goes through the field by itself, plowing the ground. I didn't do anything on Shabbos at all. I'm not allowed to have my animal do work for me on Shabbos. And that's an issue of the arising. The Torah says your animal must rest on Shabbos as well. So again, whatever your animal is doing for itself, that's its own business, right? No one's going to monitor the dog that the dog shouldn't dig holes on Shabbos. Can you point out a spider to your dog to pick up? <laughs> uh, you, can point, you can point it out, but, okay. you but, but the dog makes its own decision. You okay. cannot yeah. <laughs> direct the dog to let it go. But we can't direct, but we can't point it out. You can what? We can direct. Yeah, you can point it out, but you don't uh, tell the dog what to do. You know, you don't uh, pull the dog. Yeah, yeah, okay. Direct the dog. Okay. So these these three things are Torah laws. Meaning, Malacha, Tuchumen, and Shavisas Behemash. Shavisas Behemash is the requirement that your animal rest on Shabbos. Now, certain things, however, are rabbinic laws. They're not Torah laws. Now, the rabbinic laws are so many that it's hard to generalize. One type of rabbinic law is chumros in malacha itself. So, for example, doraisa, the isra of erasing, is only if you're erasing for the purpose of writing. The Chachamim said, even if it's not for the purpose of writing, meaning many of the Molochos got upgraded or stricter in rabbinic enactments. They are still rabbinic, but, but they are rabbinic laws of Molocha. That's one type of category. A second category is a big category called Muktza. Okay? And Muktza is especially confusing for people who are new to Shabbos observance because, you know, there's always like some little kid that's shouting at you, Muksa. You know, you're at somebody's house and you, you pick up some Muksa, Muksa. You know, you don't even know what what, what it is, uh, and everybody <laughs> has come across that kid who's always telling you Muksa, Muksa, Muksa. Uh, the word Muksa is a Hebrew word, or a Hebrew word, that essentially means removed from use. And the thing you need to know about Muksa is all the laws of Muksa are rabbinic laws. They're not Torah laws to enhance the holiness of Shabbos. And again, we'll go over some of them. I mean, you understand that this is as big as the ocean, all of these things. 
But the basic idea of muktzah is that things that you're not allowed to use on Shabbos, the sages said you're not supposed to even move. Don't even move it. So let's take, for example, a computer. Okay? I'm not allowed to use a computer because using a computer is malacha. I'm turning on lights, which is called fire, right? So using the computer or writing, using the computer is a Torah violation. But if I just want to move the computer, there's no Torah there's no, in the house, there's no Torah violation in moving the computer, even money. There's no Torah violation in touching money, moving money, handling money. In fact, even spending money is not necessarily forbidden if there's an error and the like. But the sages said that things that you're not allowed to use, like a computer, so you're not allowed to even move, because they were afraid you might try to use them. So, a pen. Let's take it simply like a pen. <coughs> now, a pen is forbidden to use, though rice, because a pen you would use for writing. But there's nothing wrong, though rice, with moving a pen. But <coughs> since the use of the pen is a forbidden use, it is muktsa. You don't move the pen either. Now, again, there are exceptions. There are times when you could move it. But this is the idea of muktsa. Muktsa basically means the things that you don't use on Shabbos, that the, the rabbis say you shouldn't even move on Shabbos. Now, you'll notice I said move. There is no iser to touch muktzah. Muktzah is not like you know, leprosy or something. If you're going to get leprosy, if you touch muktzah. The iser of muktzah is to move the muktzah, not to touch it, but of course, like a pen. Touching it is going to roll it. So. Moreover, uh, the Alter Rebbe in his Shulchan Aruch has a very, very important leniency that you need to know. And he says, all mukta <coughs> may be moved by the body if it's not the hand. So he says the Isra of mukta is only if you move it with your hand, if you move it with your shoulder, or move it with your leg, uh, that is permitted. And that's an important leniency to be aware of in the laws of Muktzah. But again, I mean, obviously you understand we're not going to go over at all all the laws of Muktzah, but just, I just want you to situate it in the conceptual framework as a, rabbinic, a series of detailed rabbinic enactments to enhance the holiness of Shabbos by keeping you away from things that you're not supposed to use on Shabbos. Okay, so again, we mentioned Malacha, we mentioned Tuchun, we mentioned Shavitas Behema, that's those are We mentioned rabbinic enhancements of Malacha, like erasing not for the purpose of writing. We mentioned the rabbinic laws of Muktza. Uh, yet another rabbinic law is very, very significant: telling a non-Jew to do work on Shabbos. This is very interesting. Under Torah law, Torah law, I could tell a non-Jew to do anything for me. I could tell a non-Jew to harvest, to plow, to write, to do my computer, do my typing. I, the rice, the rice, I could tell him to do Malachah for a very simple reason. Non-Jews are not commanded to keep Shabbos. Not only that, non-Jews are not even supposed to keep Shabbos. 
The only person who has to keep Shabbos is a Jew. And a Jew is commanded not to do work on Shabbos, whatever the work is. Okay? So if I tell a non-Jew to do work, he's doing nothing wrong. And I'm doing nothing wrong. So you understand. The Orisa, I could tell a non-Jew directly and explicitly to do work for me on Shabbos. Any moment. Cooking. Now, this is where the Rabbanan came in. The Rabbanan, the Chazal, our, our sages, wanted to enhance the holiness of Shabbos. And therefore, they did two things. They prohibited your asking a non-Jew to do anything on Shabbos that you're not allowed to do. If you're not allowed to do it, you cannot ask them to do it. Now, let me point out, this is not a sin on the part of the Gentile. The Gentile who turns on a light for me did not commit any sin. It's my sin for asking him. Hey, the guy is not going to get punished for doing this because the guy has no commandment to keep Shabbos. But I have transgressed the takana of the Chachamim. So that's one thing the sages said. Don't ask! But then they said something that's even stricter. If the guy did it for you, for you, even if you didn't, even if you didn't ask, and call the homer if you ask, you are not allowed to benefit from what he did. These are two different rules. For example, let's imagine um, a guy knows. Let's say, let's say they have a a maid or a butler or a, whatever it is, a, a non-Jew that's, or a good friend who knows that um, I love uh, whatever it is, I love chicken soup. And for some reason, uh, I don't have chicken soup for shopping. So he goes and he cooks me chicken soup. Now, am I allowed to ask him to cook me chicken soup? No. But let's assume he did it on his own because he knows I like it. I'm not allowed to eat it. I'm not allowed to eat it. I'm not allowed to get better. <coughs> if he did it for me. Now, if he did it for himself as well, like he's going to have some of the soup, then I'm allowed to, well, well there's a kosher's problem, actually, the maybe chicken soup is not, there's bishop atman, we talked about things the guy cooks. Uh, so, let's factor that out for a moment. But Lamaisa, there is a kosher's issue. But putting that aside, in terms of Shabbos, I'm allowed to benefit. Now, turning on a lot. Let's assume a room is so dark that I cannot read anything in that room. I cannot ask a guy to turn on the light. That's for sure. And we know that. But even more. Let's say he turns on the light on his own to help me out. I'm not allowed to read in that room. Now, it's a little tricky. If the room had enough light before he turned on the light that you would be able to read, even though he's making it easier, you can read. But if you wouldn't have been able to read without a turning light, you cannot do that. Okay? Now, if the guy himself <coughs> will benefit from that light, you're still not allowed to ask him. Not allowed to ask him. But you can benefit from what he did because he did it for himself as well. You see? So, all of these rules, these are called Amira Laove Kochav. You know, asking a guy to do work these are rabbinic laws, meaning the Orisha, there's literally no such thing. Which means 
I can't have my cow do work for me on Shabbos, but I can have a non-Jew do work for me on Shabbos. Right? So all of the laws of Amira the Oved Kochavim are rabbinic laws in Shabbos. Yeah. Um, so actually, with regards to turning on the light, I feel like it's, in my experience, it's more so been like the little two-year-old like climbs on the couch and like flips the lights on and off. Is, is yeah. the kid allowed to do it again and then worry? Right, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. That, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I've been talking about asking a guy or, or whatever it is. Uh, what about uh, your little kids? So again, again, so let's take the obvious case. You are absolutely not allowed to ask your five-year-old, could you turn on the light for me? And that's absolutely forbidden. And in fact, that, that the Torah says that in the Ten Commandments, you shall refrain from work, you, your son, and your daughter. Yeah. Even below by mitzvah. So even if they can do stuff on their own, because they're so young, I'm not allowed to ask them to do it. So the question becomes, okay, I'm not going to ask my five-year-old to turn on the light. But what if I just uh, carry my baby over to the switch and the baby flails his arms and you know, I know by past experience he's going to hit the light. Am I allowed to do that? Uh, the answer is you actually are in that case. Because once again, because he's below the age of bar mitzvah, he himself, he or she, is not commanded in these laws. The only thing is, I'm not allowed to tell them to do it. But if I'm not, uh, in fact, maybe it's stricter than the animal even. But if they're just doing it on their own and I just position them there, so many would permit it. Um, but again, some would be mocked, some would say it's best not to do that, you know. And the like. Yeah? Um, if a goy puts the central AC of your home on and leaves, are you not allowed to be in your house? Air conditioning, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so this is the interesting issue. Uh, the interesting issue is, I'm not allowed to benefit from what a guy did for me unless the guy also got some benefit. Right? So, in your example, what happened there was that he didn't benefit. I mean, unless he stayed for ten minutes or something. If he goes out right away, we're not going to say, oh, the thirty seconds he was there, he benefited. So based on what I said, you might say I have to leave the house. But here my answer would be similar to the right, and that is, if the house was livable, even though a little uncomfortable, you don't have to leave. And now, if the house was so unbearably hot that you could not stay in the house without the air conditioner, then you would have to leave. You see the difference? So it's a little subtle. Uh, but generally speaking, we don't make you leave the house if you would have stayed in the house without the guy doing it. As opposed to the room that's dark, you know, if you want to read, you wouldn't stay in that room without the guy turning on the light, so you have to leave. Okay? Now, interestingly, I mean, we, again, um, we can't get into every subtlety at this point, but let's take the opposite scenario that happens a lot. Let's say you left your light on and you can't sleep with the light on, a bright, you know, bright overhead light. And the non-Jew did you a favor <coughs> and shut off the light. Now I told you, if he turned on the light and the room was so dark that you couldn't read, you have to leave the room if you want to read. What about uh, he turned off the light? Am I allowed to sleep in that room? So interestingly enough, Halacha draws... Uh, maybe a curious distinction between turning lights on 
and turning lights off. And it says you can't benefit from the light he turned on, but you could benefit from the light that he turned off. And the svara, the logic behind that is that turning off the light is not giving you a benefit, it's just removing a detriment. It's removing a harm. Meaning he's not giving you a positive thing. And rather, a light is like a bad thing. He's just taking away the bad thing. And taking away the bad thing is not the same as giving you a good thing. Again, it's a little hard to fully understand that, but that the good news is, bottom line is, you can sleep in the room if the non-Jew shut off the light, but you wouldn't be allowed to tell him that. That's where hinting comes in. So, I'm not allowed to tell a boy to turn the light off. But I can tell the guy, like hinting, what is hinting? You know, I have a problem, my light is on and I'm not able to sleep. And on Shabbos, I'm not allowed to turn off the light. So I don't know what I'm going to do. Hopefully you have a smart uh, non-Jew. So sometimes non-Jew just, just, so what do you want me to do? Now, you're not allowed to say, please shut off the light. You have to say something like, I mean, hopefully this shouldn't go on so long. You, you, you have to say, well, whatever you want to do is fine. You know, feel free to do whatever you want to do. So, what do you want me to do? So then, then you have a problem. Uh, but if by hinting he gets the hint, that's okay. But again, you understand logically, hinting doesn't work for everything. Hinting works if you're allowed to benefit from what he does. For example, you could not hint to have the light turned on. Because even if you didn't hint, then he turned on the light for you. You couldn't sit there, right? This is, this is a common mistake people make. Hinting works when you're allowed to benefit from what he does. Hinting does not work when you're not allowed to benefit. Now, let's take another example, because this is common. Let's say you have a refrigerator, the old-fashioned refrigerator light problem. And when you open the refrigerator, the light bulb turns on. Which you're not allowed to do on shots, right? You're not allowed to night, so uh, what do you do? All your food is in there. Now, you may not be able, this is a shiloh, but you may not be able to ask a guy open the refrigerator because you're telling him to do a malacha of turning on the bulb. But what you can tell the guy is this. You can tell the guy uh, the same thing. You can hint, you know, I'm in trouble, I can't open the refrigerator. Uh, etc. And under those circumstances, since he is just removing an impediment, he's removing a bad thing, he's removing a door blockage, you could take the, uh, you can allow him to do that. Or alternatively, you could say, uh, oh, this would be more if you're turning on a light. Let's say turning on a light in a room. Let's say you tell the guy like this. Uh, if he simply turns it on for me, I can't even read in that room. Okay? But let's say I tell him, uh, listen, uh, there's some nice schnapps here, or nice cake here, or nice herring here, uh, in that corner there. The room is dark, but uh, if you want to find the herring, you know, feel free. And the guy turns on the light in order to get the herring. You can, you can, and then he's about to turn it off. You go, no, 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 keep it. Yeah, tell, you can tell him not to turn it off. You see? And now, why is that winter? Because you didn't ask the guy to turn on the light. You hinted. And number two, the guy did it for himself, not just for you. In other words, the halacha 
that you're not allowed to benefit is only if the guy did it for you and not if the guy did it for him. See? Yeah. Um, so let's say you get locked out of your house and you have to go through the garage. Are you allowed to tell someone, like hint it, but then tell someone the code? Uh, um, yes, yes, yes. Uh, this is a good example. Uh, you can't get into your house without entering electronic codes or electric key, right? So you cannot ask a guy directly, could you please open my house? Uh, and the reason is because you can never ask a guy to do malacha. But you can hint, you can say, I can't get in, and you can tell him the code. And then you're allowed to benefit. Why are you allowed to benefit? Because this is removal of an impediment. In other, words, that goes back to, in other words, you can benefit when he's removing a blockage. Yeah, that's how you get into a hotel room. <laughs> Electronic keys. I can't use the key, but I can actually uh, hint to a guy. Hint, hint to a guy to let me in. I can't ask, but I can hint, and I can go into my room because this is not called benefiting. This is called removing a negative. See, this is the, the difference here. Mm -hmm. Turning on the light would be giving me a benefit, and it's only going to be mutter if he uses it. But opening the door, or shutting off a light, or entering a code for access, is called removal of negative. And that is mutter, but only through hinting, and not through direct statement. Okay? So this is, uh, well, again, complicated. And I think we'll kill it. I mean, again, I'm, obviously, uh, even if we had uh, a whole year and two years, we could not get through the 39 Malachas. But what I'm going to try to do, now that you have that introduction, I'm going to try to take like, maybe some scenarios, like uh, Shabbos on a ship, you know, if you're going on a cruise, or Shabbos in a hotel. <laughs> so I'm trying to take like, an area, a problem. Can we, can we do 